Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, you practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking and self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your most holy word. We acknowledge, Father, that it's your word written by your spirit through your apostles and prophets. And we submit today to its authority and to its teaching. And we ask, Father, that now your spirit would be our teacher, that he would make plain things that are otherwise hard to see, that he would make us ready listeners, and that he would make us prompt in our obedience, Lord. Prompt and sincere, we pray. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, um, as we finished chapter 1, I think it's fair to say that things got fairly heavy. And uh, I wish that I could tell you that things were getting lighter in uh, Romans, but uh, they aren't, and uh, they won't get lighter for uh, a, a fair way ahead of us. And um, as I mentioned in one of the earlier uh, sermons in this series, Paul is relentless. He is relentless in his depiction of human crookedness. And if you allow Paul, he will convince you of the doctrine of total depravity by the end of chapter 3. I mean, Calvin spoke no more sternly about human sin than did the Apostle Paul. It's true, when you read Calvin, he has a certain Renaissance flourish. He has a kind of a flair to the way he describes things. He says that there's a veritable world of miseries in humankind, and that despoiled of our divine raiment through the fall, our shameful nakedness exposes a horde of infamies. He's got a certain turn of phrase as a, as a Christian humanist. Paul's Greek wasn't quite as flashy as Calvin's French and his Latin. 
But listen to the apostle and humankind. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Every mouth, Paul says in chapter 3, must be stopped. That is, there is no one who's going to be able to speak in their defense. No one can say, I've lived a pretty good life. Paul says we are all accountable to God and we can say nothing. Well, is there really no one, Paul? Is everyone trapped in that catalog of sinners that we saw at the end of Romans 1, that panorama of Gentile lust and viciousness? Paul, are there no moral people? Are there no good people? Are we all just foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless? John John Stott, the great uh, uh, Anglican commentator, uh, he cites uh, the scholar F.F. Bruce, uh, the biblical scholar, who was well aware that in Paul's day there were certain Stoic philosophers who were also appalled at all of the lawlessness and all of the, the uh, sensuality that was going on around them. Men like Seneca, who would have read Romans chapter 1 and read that catalog of vices and who would have concurred and who would have said to Paul, yes, Paul, what a terrible world we live in, a world that is filled with all manner of vicious and corrupt people. And I'm sure that Seneca would have wanted to take Paul by the arm and stroll down some Roman lane and invite him to ponder the world as two very sensible people as they judged all that was going on around them. And we've all known people like that. We've all known Senecas. They're not Christians, but their morals are superb. They're morally shiny. They've got a luster about them. They ooze self-control, even though that's kind of a mixed metaphor. Their, their lives are fragrant with, with virtue. I often meet people like this, not only in real life, but I meet them in the pages of a book, and I grow easily enamored by their characters. I grow uh, enamored by the moral vision of the author. And they're not perfect characters, but they're characters that radiate goodness. They radiate good, like, like old Joe Gargery in Great Expectations, that simple uh, character whose kindness and whose honesty and whose downright goodness makes you want to weep. It's the kind of morality we read about in Kipling's well-known poem, If. Kipling wrote this in the late 19th century, and he wrote it in a form of, of advice to his son. And in this poem... Kipling says to his son, he says, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about and don't deal in lies or being hated and don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken 
twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or wash the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. And then after a number of other weighty and praiseworthy ifs, Kipling concludes, he says, if you can do these things, if you can run this race, yours is the earth and everything in it, and what is more, you'll be a man, my son. That's a lovely poem, isn't it? It's a lovely vision. And some of us have known people just like this. They are full of moral goodness. Well, what about them, Paul? What about these people? The moral man, the moral woman. What about those who don't belong in that catalog of vices at the end of Romans 1? The ones who don't practice these things, and they don't approve of those who practice them, like good old Seneca. Well, Paul has an answer for us today. He has an answer about these kinds of people. In fact, the opening of chapter 2 is directed to these kinds of people. And Paul says to them, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. You'd think that the ones without excuse are the unapologetic sinners of Romans 1, those who delight unashamedly of their sin. You'd think that, therefore, the opening of chapter 2 refers to them, but it doesn't. Paul shifts now. And now he deals with these other people, whether Gentile or Jew, who look down their long noses at the masses who are sunk so deep in some depravity of one kind or another. Those who say, tisk tisk, what a terrible world we live in, and how disgusting humans can get. The other day I was picking mushrooms out of our yard uh, to put in our waste bin, but I left them too long and they'd gotten rather soft, and they'd started to rot, and I was using a shovel to move these mushrooms, but they kept falling from the shovel onto my driveway, and whenever they did so, they left this loathsome black smear on the concrete. And there are many people in this life, just like Seneca, the great moral philosopher of virtue, who distinguish themselves from the masses of malice and murder and lust and lewdness, and they say from their high perch of morality, what a loathsome smear so much of humanity seems to me. And Paul has a word for these moral people. He says, you who judge, you who look down from your high moral perch, you practice the same thing. The moment that you look down at the sinner and you say to yourself, what a loathsome smear in comparison to me. When we do that, and it's all too easy to do that, we betray our ignorance because we don't realize that the sins that you and I find so distasteful in other people, the things that really are burrs under our saddle, the vices that most offend us, these are the very sins that are lurking in the secret swamps of our own hearts. They grow there. They breed there. They flourish there. And they live unthreatened there. And if we don't act upon them openly, 
if we don't brazenly go across society and practice them like this catalog of sinners who seem to have no issue identifying with their sins, right? They're wearing the t-shirts, sinner, and proud of it. If the moral man doesn't act upon his sins openly, he finds other more nuanced and sophisticated ways to enjoy them and to practice them, even to the point of fooling himself or herself that they're not really there. And Paul just says this, Oh man, who do you think you are? Do you think that you are so righteous that you will escape God's judgment? Do you not know what's in your heart? All the malice, all the selfishness, all the small-mindedness, all the boastfulness, the pride, the slander, the deceit, the thousand arrows of unkindness that are ready aimed in your heart at any person who might dare to cross your plans. Are you so dense, O moral man, not to perceive the great weight of your own sin? Who are you, O moral man, to compare yourself to the loathsome sinner that you so easily despise. Calvin's so good on this point. Calvin says, what are you doing? What are you doing comparing yourself to your fellow man? What are you doing pluming your peacock's feathers, dreaming that you look so very good because your neighbor looks so tattered and torn? Don't compare yourself to your neighbor, he says. Compare yourself to the one whose brightness darkens the stars. Compare yourself to the one whose strength melts the mountains, before whose purity all things are defiled, whose righteousness even the angels of heaven cannot bear. Compare yourself with him. And then, Calvin says, just dare to try to speak of your innocence. And then try to speak about how you don't deserve to be judged by God. Or perhaps Paul goes on to say, you deceive yourself in this way, O moral man. You think that God's really not that concerned with judgment at all. He's far too patient, and he's far too kind, and he's far too understanding for that. I mean, after all, to err is human, and to forgive is divine. God's business is to forgive. God's business is to understand me. He's much too tender to judge a bloke like me. That's the growing creed of the Protestant church, I think. Protestants and many evangelicals, they don't want a God. They want a therapist. They want a God to listen to them. They want a God to understand them, but never one to judge them, and rarely one to tell them what to do. And the Apostle Paul says here, he says, you don't get it at all. You just don't understand. God is only patient, and God is kind because he wants to give you time to repent of your sin. The only reason God hasn't destroyed you now is because in kindness, he doesn't want to destroy you later. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But the death of the wicked, Paul says, it's surely coming. It's like a great storm, Paul says. It's building. 
and it's building, it's growing with intensity and violence and unimaginable fury this storm is, and it's going to fall upon the world when God's righteous judgment against the sinners takes place. It's all through the Psalms, isn't it? This idea that God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered, that his wax melts before the presence of the Lord, so when the Lord comes on that day, all of the wicked shall melt in his presence. It's all through the Psalms. In fact, I was reading just this week Psalm 75. Listen to Psalm 75. At the set time, I will appoint a judge who will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all of its inhabitants, it is I as judge who keeps steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. I say to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with such a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. At the set time, I will appoint a judge, the psalmist writes. And see, the apostle Paul, he seizes upon that. It's the idea, isn't it, that he gives those moral philosophers, the Stoics on the Areopagus on Mars Hill. Paul says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed. And no one really has said this more hauntingly than Jesus himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right. And he will place the goats on his left. And then Jesus will say to those on the left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick, and I was in prison. You didn't visit me. And then they'll answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? and did not minister to you? And then he will say to these goats, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Paul never gets away from this. Paul never gets away from it. The view of this is constantly facing him. The coming judgment dominated Paul's thoughts and it dominated his actions. He was who he was because he confessed that he will come again in glory 
to judge the living and the dead. And he's constantly referring to the day of the Lord. In fact, he's even praying for Christians. He's praying that it would go well with them on the day of the Lord. And when he really, really gets serious, which admittedly is just about everything he says, when he wants to get someone's attention, he reminds them of the judgment to come. When he's trying to encourage Timothy and to protect him from giving up his call as a pastor, he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Timothy, in view of that great judgment seat, Timothy, don't give up. <laughs> Timothy, don't let go. Preach the word. Remember what's coming. And Paul now says to the Romans and to anyone who thinks that how they live doesn't matter, that what they do doesn't matter, that not seeking God doesn't matter, that idolatry doesn't matter. Paul says to them now, it does matter. For the one certain thing I can tell you is that there is a judgment coming, a day of unimaginable wrath, a cup of foaming wine that humanity will drink to the dregs. And there will be two types of people on that day, Paul says. One type lived for the sake of eternal life. What they did now in this life was motivated by the hope that they'll live forever. How they spent their money, how they spent their time, what they did with the gifts God gave them. They sought glory with these things. Not their own glory, but they sought God's glory. They sought honor, not from men, but from God. They sought to be praised by God. They sought immortality, not like Ozymandias did in, in, uh, in uh, Shelley's poem, but they sought immortality in another world. They strained for these things. They pursued these things. They aggressively sought these things. They gave all they had for these things. It made them who they were. It drove their actions. Glory, honor, eternal life. But then there are these others, Paul says. And on the lips of these people are heard many foul things and many fine things. But what is never heard on their lips is this, O Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is no one that I desire on earth besides you. These people, says Paul, they're not God-seeking, but they're self-seeking. And if you could be a fly in their wall, and if you could look at the way they spend their days, the things in which they invest, the thoughts and the affections that take up their minds and their hearts, whether they are moral or whether they are ostentatiously immoral, you would see that they do not seek these things. Glory, honor, immortality. No one understands, says Paul. No one seeks God. And to brothers and sisters, if that's you today, if you seek God, if you want God more than you want anything else in this life and in the next, 
if you seek the honor that comes from God and not from man, it's because God in his mercy has called you and he has changed your heart. It's because you've heard and you've received the word of the gospel that Jesus Christ, by dying on a cross, has paid our debts and he's delivered us from the wrath to come. But if it's not you, and you don't seek God's glory, and you don't seek the honor that comes from God, that God now in patience and in kindness, he waits for you to repent. He calls you to repent. He invites you to repent, to say to him and to yourself, all my morals are nothing, and my sins are more than I can number. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, a sinner, and receive me into your kingdom, giving me a heart that loves you more than it loves anything else. And brothers and sisters, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in that way, who asks him for these things, God promises us that he will take them and he'll make them their own and save them from the judgment to come. And so let's pray together. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. In Christ's name, amen.